in uh, the mid-1930s, the U.S. Army Air Corps, which today would be the, the Air Force, uh, they held a competition. Uh, they wanted to, the military was looking for a new and improved long-range bomber. And so they, they held this competition. There were two contestants, really, in the competition, uh, vying for the contract, which would be very lucrative for both of these companies. One was Martin and Douglas, and the other was Boeing. Now, the Boeing plane could carry five times as many bombs as the Army requested. It could fly faster than previous bombers, and it could almost fly twice as far as all previous aircraft that they had seen. A Seattle journalist saw this massive plane flying through the air uh, one day, and he described it as a flying fortress, and the name stuck uh, for this, this airplane. Martin and Douglas's plane, by contrast, was far inferior. The competition was really just a formality. Already the Army kind of had a, a gentleman's agreement with Boeing to order a number of planes, but nonetheless, when the day arrived, a small group of Army brass gathered together on the tarmac and watched the competition take place. Boeing's plane taxied down the runway. And, and as it taxied down the runway, it just looked fast and it looked ferocious. It just looked like an, a, this incredible machine, this incredible bomber. 103-foot wingspan, four huge engines jetting out of the wings, double the engines of any other aircraft. It was the best bomber that they could possibly imagine. And the best test pilot was flying this plane. He was at the controls, and soon he, he had this plane roaring down the tarmac and climbed quickly to 300 feet, where it suddenly stalled, turned abruptly, and promptly crashed to the ground, killing two of the five crew, one of them being their best test pilot. It was a, hor a horrible ending, a horrible story, but as you may have guessed, the Army Air Corps didn't go with Boeing. <laughs> uh, they, they went with the inferior Douglas model. They declared them the winner. And Boeing nearly went bankrupt. But some of the Army's leadership still believed in the Boeing aircraft. And an investigation showed that nothing was really wrong with the plane, but rather the crash had resulted because of pilot error. This was the best test pilot they had. What, what possibly could have gone wrong there? And as they looked into it further, they realized that this pilot, though he was the most experienced that they had, he wasn't used to flying such a complex aircraft. He was used to more simple aircraft. And there was all kinds of buttons and switches and things to attend to. And he simply overlooked attending to one small detail that ended up in him crashing the plane and his own death. One small detail proved to be fatal. Well, they realized that the solution to this problem of, of being able to fly this incredible flying fortress, the B-17, they, they realized that the solution to the problem was not finding better pilots because they already had the best test pilot and he crashed it. Rather, they discovered that a simple life-saving habit was all that was needed to make Boeing's flying fortress, Boeing's B-17, safe to fly. That simple habit was going through a checklist. All they had to do. All they had to do was go through this checklist to make sure that everything was ready, everything was in place, that they, they hadn't forgotten even one little detail. And as long as they went through this checklist, 
the Boeing B-17 went on to fly for a total of 1.8 million miles without a single accident. Just this one single habit. As they practiced this habit of going through this checklist, it made this flying fortress safe to fly, and it was a game changer in the war, World War II. Good habits, good habits can make the difference between life and death. Isn't that true? Good habits can make the difference between life and death. Your habits of eating, yes, that can make the difference between life and death. Your habits of sleeping, your habits of exercise, these things are important, and they determine whether we will live a long, healthy, fulfilling life and have a good time in our, in, 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 have, have health in our life, or whether we won't. Habits matter, and this is especially true when it comes to, to talking about the spiritual life. This is what we're talking about today, is a spiritual habit that can make all the difference in our life. Today, as we finish this sermon series that we've been in for the last few weeks called The Rest We Need, where we've been, we've been looking at Bible teachings on the Sabbath, and the, and the Bible has a lot to say about the Sabbath. We've looked at a few of those Bible teachings. Today, I would like to look at Christ's habit of Sabbath-keeping. And how developing this one habit can make the difference between spiritual life and spiritual death for all of us. The title of the message this morning is Sabbath Habit. And before we open the Bible, I'd like to pray. Heavenly Father, open our ears to what you have to say to us. God, I pray that you would uh, speak words of life. Speak to us, God. We, we need this. You know that we're prone to some really bad habits. So God, I pray that you would help us to form the spiritual habit um, that we see in the life of Christ here, that we might experience life. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 4, and especially verse 16. Uh, so I invite you to go ahead and go there. In the Pew Bible, it's page 1030. At this time, just to get a little context as you're going to Luke chapter 4, verse 16, at this time in Jesus' ministry, his popular ratings, popularity ratings are sky high. Things are looking really good for Jesus' ministry. At this point in the story, Jesus has been baptized. He's been anointed with the Holy Spirit. He's going about in supernatural power. We're about to, to see that in just a moment. Um, he's successfully resisted the best temptations that Satan could throw at him in his time in the wilderness. And though Jesus had the appearance of a common everyday person, his life was clearly filled with the power of God. Verse 14 of Luke chapter 4 observes that Jesus returned to the towns around Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the power of God. The power of God was evident in Jesus's life. Now, religious, religious teachers of Jesus's day, they were known for their extensive learning some perhaps were known for skill and teaching. Perhaps they could hold their audiences spellbound by what they had to say. They were known for their meticulous religious practices. But this observation of Jesus is unique. For a teacher to, to be described as having supernatural power, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we don't find that. We don't find those descriptions of the rabbis of Jesus' day. But Jesus was different. He was unique. This was a new thing, and the people loved it. Jesus was traveling throughout that region. The Bible says that he was teaching in the different synagogues. And in verse 15, it tells us that the people's response 
to Jesus' ministry, their, their response to, to this, this, this individual who is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. It says that everyone praised him. That's, that's really impressive. Everyone praised him. Oftentimes, religious leaders and pastors today uh, will be praised by some people. Some of them are praised by most people. But to be praised by everyone, that's, that's very unique. Everyone praised him. But this glowing picture of popularity is about to change as Jesus continues to practice a certain habit in his life. There's a certain habit that causes this picture of popularity to change. And we see this as he enters into his hometown of Nazareth. Sing along with me. Yeah. <laughs> it's all right. Glad you're here. Let's take a look at it. Luke 4, verse 16. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And there he stood up to read, as was his custom. The New Testament doesn't say much about customs. In fact, we find this, the Greek word translated here as custom. We only find that four times in the New Testament. But here it's very significant, I think, that Luke goes out of his way to point out a custom of Jesus. What an interesting insight into the life of Jesus. We get a chance to actually see one of his customs. And Luke points this out. This is, this is a custom of Jesus. Jesus' custom was, he was in the habit, in other words, of going to the synagogue on Sabbath. Now, at first glance, let's just think about this. At first glance, this observation that Jesus' custom was to go to church on Sabbath, go to the synagogue on Sabbath. This may seem like an unnecessary statement. An unnecessary statement. The synagogue was a lot like our churches today. These were gathering places, and wherever there was a Jewish community, you'd find a synagogue. All they needed was to have 10 men present in order to have, or 10 men in the community to have a synagogue. So there were synagogues all over the place. And these were gathering places where they came to worship God. Usually during the services of the synagogue, they would, a lot like our services today, they would pray, there would be a Bible reading, there would be a scripture teaching or a sermon. And in Jesus' day, not, not like today, today most people, most Bible-believing Christians don't go to church on Sabbath, on, on Saturday. Right? They go to church on Sunday. But in Jesus' day, just about everyone just about every Bible believer would be going to synagogue or going to a worship service on Saturday. Everyone did this. So saying that Jesus went to church on Saturday, as was his custom, is kind of like saying, you got dressed and came to church today, as, was, as is your custom. Like getting dressed before leaving the home, that's just what everybody does. It's not worth noting that this is a custom that we practice because everyone does it. In Jesus' day, everyone went to church, basically, on Saturday. Every, every Jew. So why does Luke bother to make this observation that Jesus went to church, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. What's, what's Luke trying to draw our attention to? Well, the gospel story tells us, as you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel story tells us that Jesus was notorious for breaking Jewish customs. He's known for that. 
Here are some. It was a Jewish custom to not associate with people of other races, not to eat with them, not to, not to talk with them, especially not to talk with a certain race of people called Samaritans. Yet Jesus went out of his way to talk to Samaritans. He went out of his way to minister to people who the Jews considered to be Gentiles, non-Jews, outsiders. It was Jewish custom to look down on sick people, look down on poor people. They didn't value these people because they believed that these individuals were not good people. Otherwise, they wouldn't be sick and poor. I mean, does God, doesn't God bless people? Doesn't he give them health? Doesn't he give us riches if we do what is right? That was their thinking. Yet Jesus cares deeply for the sick and the poor. The Jewish community, another one I'll mention, the Jewish community, they hated tax collectors. These people were sellouts. They were working for the enemy, the Roman Empire. They were Jews who were tax collectors, and Jesus chose one of them to be his disciples. Jesus was constantly breaking with the habits, with the customs of the Jewish community, the popular habits of his community that he was in. Clearly, Jesus had no problem going against popular customs, and here's why. It wasn't because Jesus was trying to be a troublemaker. He wasn't because he was trying to start a fight. It's because Jesus came to reveal the truth about God, and if there was a habit or there was a custom that was not life-giving, that was not according to God's plan, that was not the best for humanity, then Jesus went against it because he came for us. He came to show us life. And any practice that did not lead to life, Jesus did not keep. It's very interesting that Jesus' custom was to keep the Sabbath, when this was his mission, to come to give us life. Luke 4.16 describes Jesus' habit, his Sabbath habit, as regularly attending church. That's what it's saying here. Regularly attending church. But not just that. He was also an active participant. Like church services today, the synagogue leaders back in Jesus' day, they were in charge of organizing the church service. And they would ask different people to participate in the church service. And so on this particular Sabbath, Jesus is invited to get involved in reading the scripture. Now, early on in my ministry, I had the opportunity to be a guest speaker at a church, particular church in a particular area. I won't mention where it was. Um, but there at this church, one of the church members came up to me, and this this dear church member, she helped me to realize, helped me to see the value of participating in church, of actively being involved in the church community, in the church service. She told me that she didn't see eye to eye with the pastor. She didn't particularly like the pastor, and she didn't care much for his sermons, as you could probably guess. But most Sabbaths, this lady was involved in some way in the church service. She enjoyed playing the violin, and she was very good at organizing musicians, and so she would, almost every Sabbath, she had a group of musicians, and it was true that Sabbath that I was, that I was speaking. She had a group of musicians all together there on, on the floor, and they were playing music, beautiful music, contributing to the church service. It was, it was really a wonderful thing uh, to see. And even though she told me, you know, I don't get much out of the church service, out, out of, out of the, the pastor's preaching, she said that every Sabbath I am blessed because I'm giving. 
Every Sabbath, I, I, I try to be involved. I, I found a way to serve, and, and I serve in whatever way that, I ha- that I'm able to. Every Sabbath, she was blessed. You know, it, it really stands out to me. There, there's a blessing that's often missed because we fail to, to get involved. And I'm just as guilty as this. You might think, wait a second, Pastor Brian, you're the pastor. You're supposed to be involved. But when I don't have to be involved, the idea of not being involved sounds good. <laughs> yeah. There's a blessing that we can miss when we're not involved in some way with the community of, of church. Sometimes we can get in the, in the, into this, commu- this cons- I can't talk today, sorry. Sometimes we can get into this mindset, this consumer mindset when we come to church. And that expresses itself in different ways. Maybe it's, we think, well, the music wasn't what I like. It's not my preference. Or the sermon, it, it didn't feed me. Or the people there, they weren't friendly to me. And we come to church looking for what we can get out of church. Now, please don't get me wrong. I want for you to get a lot out of church. I hope that in some way you're blessed from me being up here talking. <laughs> um, I hope that you're blessed from the, the music or the prayer all, or, or the interaction afterwards. The children's story. Thank you, Dan, for that children's story. I, I hope that you're blessed from the elements of the story. But the, the problem is, is that if we are dependent upon what other people do or what other people do not do in order to receive the blessing, we have a really good chance of being disappointed with church. Can you relate? If you come to church and the only way that you can have a good experience here, the only way that you can be blessed here is if everything goes right, you're probably going to be disappointed because we're human beings and we don't often get it right. But if you come to church to give, there's life in that. It's life-giving. If your Sabbath habit includes involvement in ministry, there's a blessing in that. Jesus shows us the way. Luke 4, 17 says that Jesus was handed a scroll and he reads the words of Scripture that we find in verses 18 and 19. These are words from the prophet Isaiah. Jesus opens the scroll and he goes to this particular passage in Isaiah. Look, listen to what it says. Let me put it up there on the screen. Listen to what it says. Isaiah, sorry, Luke 4, verse 18. This is the words of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Imagine Jesus here in this church service, and he gets up and he's reading this. Could anyone read this passage the way Jesus reads it? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here is Jesus reading this scripture, reading this prophecy that foretold him, this moment in Nazareth on this Sabbath. For generations, the people of God, the Jewish people, had been waiting for the Messiah. Since the time of Adam and Eve, when God promised them a deliverer that would crush the head of Satan. He would free people from sin and death. God's people had longingly waited 
for the Messiah's arrival. And now the one that the prophets had foretold, the one that the, the theme of Scripture, of the Old Testament, of the New, well, the New Testament haven't been written yet, but the, the theme of Scripture is standing there reading the Scripture, the, con, the, the condescension of Christ, the willingness to humble himself, to come down to where we are. It's unbelievable. He is there reading about himself. Words that were written hundreds of years before he came. Here, the desire of all nations is worshiping with them on the Sabbath, as was his custom. And after reading these verses, Jesus explains their relevance. In Luke 4.21, he says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's mind-blowing to see how the people responded. As Jesus is speaking to them, they begin to turn to one another. And, and the Bible gives us this sense that, that they begin to whisper, but they're not whispering in a way that is discreet. It can be heard. They begin to talk to each other. Is not this Joseph's son is the question that they ask. And it's not a compliment what they're saying. They're calling into question what Jesus is actually teaching here. That he is, in fact, the Messiah. The, long, long wait, the, the one that they have long waited for. They turn to each other and they say, Is not this Joseph's son? Because no one thought that Joseph, this manual laborer, this simple man who came from an insignificant, the way they considered it, insignificant family who lived in a backwater town like Nazareth, no one thought that Joseph was the type of person that was likely to be the father of the Messiah. So when they say, is not this Joseph's son, they are calling into question everything that Jesus has just said. They're calling into question whether he could actually be the Messiah. Could, could the Messiah actually be Joseph's son? No way. Jesus didn't meet their expectations. And by the end of his sermon, the congregation turns hostile. Luke 4.29 says that they got up, they drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order, this was the reason they did this, in order to throw him off the cliff. <laughs> That's Jesus' home church. Now, I'm just going to guess that this probably was not the way Jesus hoped the sermon would turn out that day. But I'm also going to argue, I would argue, that Jesus was not surprised that it turned out this way. If anyone knew how the synagogue of Nazareth would respond to the good news of Jesus being the Messiah, today these words of scripture are fulfilled in your hearing. It was Jesus. Jesus knew these people. Likely he had attended this church for over 15 years. He knew them, and they knew him. He knew their proud hearts. He knew their incorrect expectations of what the Messiah would look like. He knew that they disagreed with him theologically. He knew that they would bristle when he gave them the truth. And yet, Jesus joined their church service anyway. That gives me a lot of confidence that he's here today. 
pardon me for the implication that I just made. Um, I'm including myself as in that. The story of Luke illustrates that Jesus was willing to risk his life in order to practice his Sabbath habit. Today, the Bible tells us that following Jesus' Sabbath habit is still worth the risk. Because it is a matter of life and death. That might sound dramatic, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue for that here for the next moment or two. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7. As you're going there, I'd just like to observe that the context here of Revelation chapter 14, in, in chapter 13, the verses that come before the chapter 14, it's talking about worship. In fact, chapter 13 mentions the word worship, I believe, about five times. You check me, I could be wrong on that. But it's talking about worship. It's talking about a false system of worship, a system that is established by human beings, and it's used, uh, symbolic language is used to describe this system of worship as the beast and the image that is set up by the beast. And those who do not worship in this way will be killed. It's a life-threatening experience to not worship the beast, this man-made system of worship. So to follow Jesus' Sabbath habit of worshiping according to the scriptures will, will put us at risk of our life, is what it's saying. Now in Revelation chapter 14, it talks about the end of the world. And later on in the chapter, it describes Jesus and his angels coming to harvest the earth. There, this, this symbolic language is used that they were very familiar with, harvesting and it's, it pictures Jesus and his angels, and it gives us this picture of the second coming where, they, where Jesus will come down with his angels and, and take his people to heaven. And it's also a description where those who are not ready to go to heaven, those who are not prepared, those who have not put their trust in Jesus, they will be lost. So either you're saved or you're lost here in, in Revelation chapter 14. And in verse 7 describes what determines that, how to avoid death, how to choose life. Listen to what it says in verse 7 of Revelation 14. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Listen to it. The word judgment there is determining who is saved and who is lost. And now comes the, the counsel of God. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Those ready for the judgment have a particular habit. They worship him who made, listen to it, this is very intentional, and, you, and I'll make it clear in a moment. Worship him who made what? The heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. It's no coincidence that the reason given for worship is a quote from the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Why? Because in six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, and the sea. It's not a coincidence. It's a correlation combining worship with Sabbath observance. It's a Sabbath habit of worship that the Bible is talking about. A habit that is essential before the harvest of the earth. Essential to be experienced so that we are ready for the judgment. Those ready for the judgment have this particular Sabbath habit of worship. 
God's people today are called to practice the very same habit that Jesus practiced while on this earth. This habit of worship. Now, a helpful way to determine whether your worship is about God or not is this. When you... Well, let me just ask, we'll just ask the question. Where do I turn when I am empty? Where do I turn when I'm empty? When you are lonely, when you are insecure, when you're feeling insecure, when you're upset, when you're just feeling empty, where do you turn? Where do I turn when I'm empty? And the answer to that question is probably who you worship or what you worship. It's a sobering question for me because there's a tendency in my life to not turn to God when I'm empty. There's a tendency in my life to want to pick up my phone and look at social media. I'm not saying that social media is wrong. Please don't misunderstand. I'm just saying turning to it is what I tend to do when I feel empty or, or turning to food or turning to work or turning to a conversation with someone else. I tend to look to other things and if you can relate to that, the problem with that is this. If we are looking to things that cannot give us life, if we're looking to those things for life, we're not going to find life. It's a pretty simple formula. Those things cannot give us life. If we turn to anything else but the life giver, we are going to die. This is what the Sabbath habit is all about. It's about worshiping God, the one who made life. You see, if you're anything like me, my tendency is to just get distracted and look other places, even though I know this stuff. I need to be recalibrated every seven days by worshiping God. I need to have a habit that directs my attention to the life giver. It's kind of like the earth rotating around the sun, going, going in its orbit around the sun. If it didn't go around the sun, if it went around some like a rock or, or something else, I don't know, if it, if it went around something else that didn't give the heat and the warmth that we need for life, where would we be today? We wouldn't be here, right? It's obvious. The Sabbath puts God at the center of our life. And rather than trying to orbit around other things that don't give us life, it puts our life in orbit around the Son of God. Jesus, the life giver. This is when we turn our full attention to the one who loves us, the one who has the answer to every problem that we face, the one who can make us new creations inside by speaking, the one who has the power to turn us from the habits that ruin our life, habits that are sinful, Habits that lead to death. This is what we do on the Sabbath. This is what the Sabbath is all about. We cannot worship God on the Sabbath unless we recognize him as Lord. And sometimes people can look at the Sabbath commandment. Wait a second. This seems really restrictive to worship from Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown. I mean, is that really what we must do? Why don't I just keep a Sabbath when it's convenient? I'll be careful to do it every seven days. We want to mess with it. 
But if God is going to be our Lord, if he is going to be the one that we turn our attention to, then we must receive his command as it is given. And it's a blessing that he gives us the command, that he doesn't just say, hey, it's probably a good idea to rest every once in a while, you figure it out. We submit to God by practicing worship on the Sabbath, by doing it when he says to do it. And it's a blessing because in that way, following exactly what he says, we get to turn our attention to him and away from ourselves. Every Saturday, God calls us to a spiritual retreat. If you've ever been on a spiritual retreat, have you ever been to a, a revival weekend or anything like that? Chances are your experience was, was something like this. It was amazing, it was powerful, but then it began to fade. Can anybody relate to that? Right? It's almost, almost like you're, you had this incredible you know, experience where you're just radiating with the love of God, but then it grows cold over time. God knows that we need a regular spiritual retreat, and that's what the Sabbath is all about, where we stop from all the regular work that we do. The, the, the work that God has given us to do six days a week, it's a blessing. We need to do it. But we also need to recalibrate our thinking so that Jesus and God is the center, the life giver, the creator is the center of our life. This is what happens when we worship him. We let God recalibrate our thinking. Just as Jesus came to his home church in Nazareth, undeserving as they were, Jesus comes to lead us in this Sabbath habit. His presence is here in a special way. His presence enters this 24-hour time in a special way. He comes to us today. And if we are willing to follow his Sabbath habit of worshiping, where we turn our attention fully to him, where we practice this, it's a habit, it needs to be developed. It's easy to get distracted, but we continue to practice worshiping him on this day, turning, turning our attention to him on this day, turning our conversation to him on this day looking for ways to serve him when we do this. If we are simply willing, if we take a lesson from what we just read in Luke 4, and we are willing to accept Jesus as the Savior, as the one worthy of all of our worship, then we will find the rest that we need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for coming into our world that we might disagree with you theologically, which just sounds crazy. That we might not want to accept what you have to say to us. You still come to us, and you lead us to worship you. May we be willing. And perhaps there are some of us here who are not willing. I pray, God, that you'd make me, and make each one that is in that case, willing to be made willing. God, forgive us. Forgive us for turning to other things that don't give life. And may we be willing to follow Jesus in this Sabbath habit of worshiping you today. In Jesus' name, amen.